Coming up on the Celtics Talk podcast, my buddy, Bobby Marks, ESPN front office insider. He has been in those war rooms. He knows what it's like to hire coaches, maybe a few too many coaches during his time with the New Jersey and Brooklyn, but he can give some insight to the challenges ahead with Brad Stevens and what happens with Kemba Walker. That's coming up on the Celtics Talk podcast. All right, here with Bobby Marks, ESPN front office insider, and one of my favorite people from my last stop. Bobby, I hounded you a little bit, uh, just because I think this is like a crazy offseason. I think you are uniquely um, inclined to, t- 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 to take us through what is ahead for the Boston Celtics. And I want to start here. The, the big news up here in Boston right now, Kemba Walker report that they are heading towards a possible separation. I think it's a little bit overstated. I think we understand that Kemba might not be the best fit for Boston long-term, but the problem I'm having, Bobby, I started looking around, what deal is out there for Kemba Walker? No, you're right. It's, uh, and thanks for having me on. You're right. We've, I've, we've attempted to do this podcast, I think like two or three weeks in a row. And last week I was actually on a flight going to LA when the, the Brad Stevens, Danny Ainge news broke. And I was like, I don't think I can get on a podcast with you right now, but <laughs> we'll figure out some time here. But yeah, I mean, I think with Kemba, it's just natural because um, he's got two years left, 70, you know, four, $75 million. He's been injured, right? Uh, you're coming off a year where you lost in the first round, right? So we start connecting the dots. It's, it's kind of like what's happening in Dallas with Kristaps Porzingis. Mm-hmm. He's owed three years, $100 million. The Mavericks lose in the first round. And then all of a sudden, all right, how do we shake up the roster? How do we start moving players around? So I do think it's a little bit um, premature regarding um, Akemba because really when you look at the Celtics roster, all right, who else is it going to be? It's not going to be Jalen. It's not going to be Jason. Um, you know, Marcus Smart, as, as you know, has tremendous mm-hmm. value. He's in that expiring contract. Um, so who, like, it's not your younger players. It's the guy that's making 35, $36 million and who has been injured here. So, um, you're right though. You go through the exercise, uh, and that's what teams are doing. You go through the exercise you go basically go, um, one to, you know, 29, every team, like, all right, how do we get something back of value in return instead of just here, take the 70 million plus and a first round draft pick right to um oklahoma city or one of these you know teams that have been able to take back money and there's there's not there's not much out there i mean i did i did the exercise when i was on with zach Lowe earlier this week with porzingis yeah and i was basically thrown out like hey you know you could do like you know terrence ross and gary harris you know like guys like that and you know, like for in the, in the Porzingis situation, Kevin Love, like you just start like to get rid of a contract, you have to take back something that is not appealing. Like Toronto, um, when Masai got there in 2013, made the Rudy Gay trade, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Rudy Gay trade, where you basically took that contract and you split it up into like three other players, which, yeah, you would love to do a trade like that. But those do not come. Um, those do not come around yeah. here. And um, you know, for a player that's owed a lot of more, you know, a lot of money, um, it's hard to kind of wrap my arms around. Is it going to be the Blake Griffin situation where basically they pay him, um, 
60 million of what is left and tell him, you know what you were, thanks for coming. You can go (laughs) sign with another team. That that is not happening. (laughs) That is, that is not happening because as you know, and and you have followed him forever, like when he's healthy, there's still value there, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so how do we get him healthy? Um, How do we maybe manage his minutes? Um, How do we put him in a position to exceed? And, um, And then, maybe down the road there'll be a point you may it's like that that you you buy kind of a little bit of a used car you you gotta Mm -hmm. shine it up put some new wheels on it um and and kind of restore restore his value and and that's where i've landed on it i feel like you know do the with the Celtics if there was a trade out there that materialized of course they would be interested i think there was from pretty much the time jason tatum elevated to all-star all of a sudden it was like, okay, this fit might not be perfect long-term. And if Jalen and Jason need the ball in their hands more, he's a ball dominant guard who needs pick and rolls and doesn't really spot up. Like it's not ideal. So we knew this, this, this sort of junction point was coming. It just happened quicker because of the way Jalen and Jason accelerated. So I think the Celtics are way better and hopefully a more normally spaced season. If you can get Kemba out there 65 games, I mean, like that might be ambitious based on the past two years, but if you can restore value, I think next summer when he's an expiring deal and then you can bundle some picks, maybe you get in on a, the next disgruntled player. Yeah. Maybe Bradley Beal is at the point, like, you know, it's like yeah. weird things happen. So I think they just got to be patient here. So it's, it's, I, but, I, but I did this. I, I think you can go on any podcast now and just take uh, everybody that you had uh, and, and sub in Kemba's name, because I've done the same thing. I've gone, all right, you know, Kevin Love, the, uh, the, the, the Porzingis one, but Porzingis yeah. has an extra year. Yeah. The, I want to throw this one at you. Like, this is the one that, that Celtics fans are starting to fall in love. Canard uh, and Patrick Be- Beverly to the, on the Clippers and some others, like, you know, one other additional player to make the money work. But what, what do you think there would be – do the Clippers – is that enough for the Clippers to, 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 to be interested adding a piece like a Kemba Walker? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's another one of those connect your dots, right? You have yeah. an owner that has unlimited resources from a spending power and is willing to absorb that amount of money – um, it's funny, you know, I, I said it the other night during the Utah uh, game, game one, like, you know, Luke Kennard has basically went from like, you know, we couldn't find him. He was in the, I call it the witness protection program, right? <laughs> For games one to five and a half. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, Luke Kennard is now a value player coming off uh, your bench, right? He's a good, he's a good reserve. Uh, he's got that, you know, he just signed that rookie extension. He's got four years, I think mm-hmm. 56 million, somewhere around there. Beverly's in an expiring. So, it's, I think it's, it's all about what is the, you know, the Clippers appetite for, um, you know, Kemba's money. It's, it's the scenario where like, all right, if we're going to lose Patrick Beverly for nothing, right. When he's an expiring mm-hmm. and we're over the salary cap because of um, Paul George and um, if Kawhi returns, yeah. like it's something better than nothing. And I think that's something where, you know, would I see that this summer? No, that's, as you mentioned, like, let's just, let's get the player healthy. Let's get his value back up. And then maybe when we get to the trade deadline, if there's something out there and um, he's playing, you know, I don't know if at an all-star level, but at a starter mm-hmm. level, but consistently, then that's something you look at. But the Chris, the one thing that I'm stunned about is that, you know, when, when Kemba signed in Boston in 2019, like his health, <laughs> It's unbelievable. You go through it. And I wrote about it in their off season article um, when Charlotte, I think two years ago. And like, you go through the bot, like 80 games, 82 games, 81, like he, he did not miss games, you know? And it, it, it shows you like, 
it goes fast, man. <sighs> like it, it like looked the Harden situation, mm-hmm. like Harden in Brooklyn uh, while he was in Houston did not miss games. Right. Then you get a hamstring. And now it's kind of just that lingering thing that's going to probably be there until, you know, you get a full off season of, of rest. And it's funny you say it because uh, this, I started covering the Celtics. I was around a little bit for the 2018, but more as like I was, I was living in the area. I was going to games, but I wasn't, a, I wasn't really a reporter yet. And then by like 2009, I was starting to get some reps. And do you think about it? That was the year KG got hurt and sacrificed and, and they couldn't get to the finish line of that 2010 perk gets hurt in the finals like it's just every year since 2009 they've had some catastrophic injury like a four-year wait for gordon hayward to be healthy yeah. and now it's kemba like i, I feel so bad because I, I feel like i like the celtic medical staff but they are constantly under fire because they have not been able to keep this team healthy and uh you know that's part of what you sign up for when you sign a guy who's going to be over 30 uh, to a to a, a, a deal uh, and yet it, it has left them in a little bit of a precarious situation here where they're trying to maximize Tatum and Brown's window. You brought up the Brad thing off the top. So I, I, like this, I'm, I'm partly fascinated. First of all, what was your general reaction when you hear that Brad Stevens, who I just thought would coach forever, is going, <laughs> is, is, is going to the front office? And more importantly, like what, can, what is your advice for someone like that who has never been in yeah. a front office situation and now is tasked with maybe one of the craziest off-seasons in, in at least in recent memory for the Celtics. Well, it's funny when I first saw the news about him transitioning um, to the to the front office. I I had a, I was like, a, oh no, not 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 another one of these. And when I say not a one of these, are we going to see the dual role of head Ooh. coach slash front uh, president, which, as you know, never works out <laughs> because what happens is it's it's great in the off season, but when you get into the regular season, and I think we saw it in Minnesota with Tibbs, like your focus is coaching, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not worried about like a trade at the deadline or ro- or adding a 15th guy or kind of roster management. Um, my thoughts was, is that, um, yes, I agree with you. I thought that w- Brad was a lifer, was mm-hmm. a front office, something that, um, you know, uh, I saw down the road. No, but having experience in, um, New- in Brooklyn with, Jason Kidd, mm-hmm. who, um, you know, wanted, a, you know, um, that was something that Jason envisioned down the road. Um, even Lawrence Frank, when we had Lawrence as an assistant coach, um, we had it and he had it in his contract that um, down the road that, you know, if he left um, coaching that the front office would kind of be like a, a fallback plan where I just think what happens is coaches get burnt out, you know, per- coaches get to a point where, and this, this year is a little bit interesting just because of the grind, the COVID, the games, missing games, lack of practice here. Um, it'd be interesting where Brad is like two years from now, if he's still in that, you know, burnout. We don't know. Who knows? Yeah. But I, I do think the front office is a, a great fallback for um, from a coaching standpoint. I, I, I said it on Woj's pod. Um, you get an you got an upfront scouting yeah. perspective on every player. Right. So I think the important thing is that I think he's going to act as a CEO, right? When you are the head of basketball operations, you are the CEO Mm -hmm. of that group. Now you have to hire all the different branches or, or keep, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Mike Zarin is terrific and uh, Austin Ainge, you know, guys in that, um, you know, Dave Lewin guys in the front office there. Like, so now you are relying on your experts, 
right? So you were relying on Mike Zarin from a roster building cap trade. You are relying on Dave and Austin from a um, personnel standpoint. Um, and then you are the one who is going to make the decision at the end of the day. It relies on you to come up with that decision. And that's going to be the, the biggest thing for, from Brad's perspective is acting as that CEO. I mean, if he's going to want to just take it all on, then I think he's going to run into to some problems here. But if he surrounds himself with the right people from the front office, and then I think where, his, his, where it's, it's going to be best, um, his strong suit is the coaching part of it because mm -hmm. he's had, he's done it. He knows the relationship it takes between a coach and a front office. Um, he's not, I don't think he's going to be overbearing because he's been in that hot seat. Um, he can give perspective on the roster that he has coached over the last eight or nine years, mm -hmm. including most of that are returning um, this year. So I think that is, um, that's going to be a strength for him, but um, yeah, I mean, it is going to be a little bit of a, um, a learning curve as far as, um, you know, just kind of getting up to speed just for some of the rules. But as I always said, like, that's why you have the experts who manage the cap and do all the trade stuff and, um, and, and go through that, that process. I think one of the things that will help is Brad is very much like Danny, like they empower the people around them. Like Danny always sought the advice of the guy mopping the floors and like, you know, anybody like, how do you feel about this trade? And we take it all into consideration. End of the day though, Danny Ainge was like, this is how I feel about this. I'm going to make this move. That's my question with Brad. Like, I think he can take all that in, but now he's in that position where you gotta, you gotta make that choice. And I think that's tough sometimes. Like that's his personality is very even keel. And I think GMs have to be a little bit, ruthless at times right like can yeah. he make the tough decision on a roster player like give up on a rookie not that danny ainge gave up on many rookies lately but well marcus um, marcus smart's gonna yeah. be ready. that's gonna be the that's gonna be the, the test kitchen one. right there right at, like right off the bat i mean marcus smart's on an expiring contract um he's extension eligible he's probably one of the celtics um big trade assets right has you know is a lifer um has tremendous value to this organization but what happens when Marcus Smart want, or his agent comes in and is looking for an extension? Already heard rumbles. Already yeah. heard like, you know, um, and, and understandably so. Marcus is, sure. you know, we, when he signed that deal, we said, ooh, that's a little high, you know. But then yeah. four years later, we do this with everybody. Oh, that number is not as – it's very digestible. $14 million this year, I think, in yeah. the final year. So uh, – and I, I do think it's fascinating because Danny loved Marcus, loved that instigator mentality. I think Brad likes it too, but also sat there on those nights where he was one of nine shooting and said – Marcus yeah. might, might need to be a little bit more deferential here. And some of the domino effect could be what happens with Kemba too, right? Like yep. if, if Kemba is definitely back, you don't necessarily need Marcus as much in that ball handling role. I don't know. So I think there's, but that, 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 that to me is the great thing. We're going to find out a lot more about what Brad Stevens thinks of these players than we ever did as a coach when he could be like, well, you know, Danny's the one who makes the roster moves, even though we know that Brad was in on some of those meetings. You've been in on coaching searches and yeah. like, I, what, what is that like? And how do you think it will be for Brad? You know, he just knows so many coaches. We've already seen Woj report. You know, they've got like what feels like a hundred assistant coaches coming in. Can he drill down and find the person he wants? And what, what kind of, is there a balance between like what kind of GM you are versus what kind of coach you want? And like, how does that all work? Well, unfortunately, I've been involved in too many coaching searches in, <laughs> in New Jersey and in, uh, in Brooklyn. I don't even know, seven, eight, right? Crazy. Something like that. The trend now is, is that you see a lot of names being reported that teams will interview. What happens is like teams bring in uh, coaches that they're interested in. 
are there is lists. There's an A, one A list. There's a one B list. There's a one C list. You are what you're doing is you're taking that information that mm -hmm. someone in Sacramento how their coaches do it, and you're keeping a nice little journal, <laughs> and you're basically trying to steal some of that information. I mean, we've seen it. You know, I mean, Indiana last year brought in like twenty guys. You know, you think they're just going in there just to interview to interview like. So there is there's a process here, like as far as how different or, uh, coaching staffs are run. So that's the one thing I think. The, the other thing is, is that it's a it's almost like when you're bringing draft prospects to interview. Right. You are keeping a journal for down the road mm -hmm. that coach that, hey, this guy is really good, but I don't think he's quite ready yet when he kind of is more seasoned three or four years from now, if there is an opening, maybe it's the top assistant or maybe it's your head coach leaves um, that you already have a familiarity. So there's no harm bringing in 20 to 25 guys. I think the big thing nowadays um, is that it's not all about X's and O's. Yeah. Right. Like we saw in Indiana, the Indiana situation blew up. Right. Like, and I wrote about, it. I said, like, you could be Phil Jackson and, and be the best X and O's or sideline, you know, mm -hmm. draw the best sideline out of bounds. But if you are not a communicator and you are not managing your locker room and even your staff, like you have no chance. Like, like a good example is like Mike Malone has used the two words in this, this Phoenix series that are taboo soft and quit right like dangerous there are not many people who are able to do that but mike malone has a pulse i think mm -hmm. on this group as far as what are the buttons to push here so when you're going out and you're hiring communication right how do they manage locker room former player help certainly mm -hmm. i think what steve nash has done in um in brooklyn yeah steve's probably not the best x and o guys but he was able to surround himself with Mike D'Antoni, yeah. Jacques Vaughn. So that's going to be part of um, when Brad is meeting with Chauncey Billups. Okay. Who is your staff going to be? Mm -hmm. What does your staff look like? What are you, what do you envision? What do you think about our roster? Um, I think what Sean Marks and, and Steve Nash have been able to do in Brooklyn was there was a relationship there when they said, when Steve said, this is how I'm going to coach. These are the guys that fit Bruce Brown fits, right? Mm -hmm. Guys like those minimum guys, Mike James, who they signed in um, mid April fits. So there's gotta be a relationship there where um, the coach is not the guy making the decision, but a relationship with the front office where um, you're kind of hand in hand, as far as, you know, who the players are being, being selected here. But yeah, I mean, I think this this coaching search will go will go on because yeah. once you make that decision, right? Like I always say, like you always you get a one mulligan rule as your um, as an executive, like you can't keep on turning it over, right? Like the carousel of turnover we saw it in Memphis for a while. We seen Sacramento, like you just can't keep on turning over coaches, and especially for where this roster is and where you have you know. Uh, Jalen and in going into um, year two of that contract, Jason's about to start his max uh, contract. You got to get it right, man. Yeah. You're like, you got to get it right.
And and you think about the Celtics, like someone, a team that values that continuity and chemistry, like they, whoever they choose, this isn't just for the window of Jalen and Jason. They figure this is going to be the person that leads them deep into the future. Now, maybe you run into a situation where, where like Brad, where I do think he probably looked up and as good of a communicator as he is, he's going, why can't I get through to these guys anymore the way I used to? And maybe they just need a different voice. So it all lined up where it was like, he needs a new challenge. This, this roster needs a different voice to guide them. I'm like, I'm sitting there assuming he's saying like, we, we can't switch and get Tristan Thompson on James Harden or, 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 or Kevin Durant in the playoffs, but yet it happens. And so maybe it was just time, but I'll be fascinated to see what kind of coach he does bring in. I can, every day I've changed my mind about what he's going to do. Like, I know they love Kara Lawson, yeah. you know, Becky Hammond. I, I, there's so many intriguing names out there. Brad is probably like a kid on Christmas right now talking to all his coaching brethren, probably also starting to think, man, why did I get away from this? But, uh, you know, I'll be very interested to see what his mind says is the best blend for this team. And then after that, he's got a million different tough choices ahead of him from there. So like, let's just run it down real quick. Like Evan Fournier. Yeah. What do you think the market's going to be like for him? And, and should the Celtics be willing to pay it after seeing, you know, great offensive players, size and shooting and all that, but the defensive liability is also shown through a little bit against a Nets team where your defensive vulnerabilities are going to be on display no matter what. Yeah. One of my biggest pet peeves when, um, if you're watching games and stuff and when is when people start putting out, man, this guy's going to get paid. And I'd be like, Oh, wait a minute here. Let's look at the, you know, like there's a market, right? Like yeah. I always, when I was, I wrote an article about two years ago about, it was about rookie max extensions and stuff. And I talked to a bunch of teams about it and the biggest thing was what does the market dictate, right? I don't care if a guy's averaging 16 points and mm-hmm. shooting 44% from three, if there's not a market for that player, then you're, you're limited as far as your options. So when you look at the teams outside of that, um, that 9.5 mid-level exception, right? Um, you are looking at teams like New York, Miami, Charlotte, San Antonio, Oklahoma City, perhaps Toronto. Um, we'll see what happens in Dallas, but they've mm-hmm. got their own Evan Fournier and Tim Hardaway there. So, like, so is there a team, one of those five or six that are willing to pay him 14 to 16 million dollars? Like, I'm not sure. So mm-hmm. he's unrestricted. You don't have the choice of matching the offer. Um, I, I mean, it's hard to gauge Evan Fournier's year. COVID yeah. gets traded pretty decently down the back end, you know, started to kind of find his legs in here. But on the other end, if you're the Celtics, you lose Evan Fournier. You don't replace him with, you have the $5.9 million tax mid-level exception. So how much do you value him to retain and pay the luxury tax, right? Like you're right at that number. Um, and so that's the decision that the, the, the front office is going to have to, to make. And how much trust do you have in your younger guards, Naismith, Langford, guys mm-hmm. like that that can kind of step in? Um, do you feel that their production can somewhat equal what Evan can give you here? So it, it's hard because like on one end, you're, you're almost forced to, hey, we don't have any many options, man. We're going to have to bring him back on a 12 to $13 million contract and maybe a little more because if we lose him, you know, we're just stuck with the tax mid-level and we don't even know if ownership will green light that, right? Or, you know what? Go out, shop an offer, come back to us, right? And if it's, if it's too much, we have faith 
in our young players mm -hmm. that they are going to take that next step. Well, I mean, my big fear is that they're going to trade him. They're going to sign and trade him. And we're going to run into trade exception 2.0 <laughs> after I've just lived the Gordon Hayward trade exception. And we're still, still not over. Hey, at, least they, you, at least you know how it works now. <laughs> we want to, we don't need a refresher at all. So. I don't know. I feel, I feel like I did seven explainers over the course of the season. And then, uh, you know, again, the cost wasn't prohibitive too much, like, but they did have to give two yeah. second round picks to Charlotte to get that. And then they gave two second round picks to Orlando. So they've given up, you know, some capital here to get Evan Fournier. Uh, and, and, and as a team that's lost Al Horford and Kyrie Irving and everybody for nothing, you can't just continue to let players go without recouping value. So I do think part of Brad's challenge is finding a way to maximize that asset. He does love veterans. So my, my inclination is if the, if the price is fairly reasonable, they'll bring them back. All right, Brad Stevens calls you and says, should I, should I resign or not resign, but a, a rookie extend Robert yeah. Williams, despite his injury histories. Now, Bobby, I don't know if you know this, Mike, my thing is I'm, I'm ready. I'm like, I'm ready. If, if I was a GM, I'd probably give him the supermax. but uh, at a more reasonable number, are you willing to resign Robert Williams despite his injury history? The rookie extension is the hardest contracting mm. to negotiate unless you are uh, Tatum, yeah. Bam, Mitchell, <laughs> that group there. Right. Like that is uh, because two things um, is not like free agency where you have a team coming in with an offer sheet. You are not bid. You're not go bidding against anybody else. Right. So it's like, it's like salary arbitration um, where you basically have a deadline the day before the start of the regular season. Right. That is the only deadline at all. Um, I was looking at numbers. There's only been, seven players since 2018 who have been picked past pick number 20 who have been extended wow yes that is a big number here i mean and, and then and one of those was siakam who got the max so extensions are based on upside right mm -hmm. that is your big thing it's a little bit different than um, me going out and giving Chris Paul an extension because I, your age is in there and it's, yeah, I'm a little more cautious there. Um, extensions are, it's a value buy into the future. Okay. So it's, a, it's more of a gut instinct, right? So if you go by the body of work of Robert Williams for three years, it says, yeah, I want to see a little bit more, mm -hmm. right? I want to see, I want to see a player that's healthy. I want to see you know, him on the court for 70 games. I want to see him in a starter role for a whole year. But on the other end, do you go by the 55 games that he played? His per 36 minutes are like 15 and 13, <laughs> right? Like his, his, his uh, per 100 possessions is like off the chart. Thinking like, shoot, like if this guy plays the whole year, like we might be paying him out the rear yeah. next off season when instead of six teams with cap space this year, now we're looking at 15. Oof. So now you're looking at what the market for the future is going to be. And although you have that advantage where you're, you're just competing against him and, and, and his, his aging uh, Kevin Bradbury, like you got to be cautious, cautious there. So it, I always say rookie extensions are a compromise. What is the compromise going to be? OG Ananobi in Toronto, there was a compromise because he got a fourth year on the deal, but Toronto has on a great $16, $17 million contract here. So, so what are you looking at? Are you looking at Miles Turner type money, right? Miles Turner's extended for four for 72. Is that a compromise here? 
Um, you're looking at how does 2022-23 finances mm -hmm. impact a Robert Williams extension? Are you comfortable Kemba's number might be off your books by then? Um, are you comfortable paying the luxury tax for a second year? Um, I think you have to look at it where, you know, Robert Williams is going to be on our roster long-term, even if we have to take a one-year hit here. Um, so I, I think there's a lot to dive in here. And as I said, it's kind of like a gut, it's a gut instinct, right? It's like, I think the beauty of it is that Brad has had him for three years mm -hmm. and knows what his upside is, knows what the, you know, what he still needs to work on, knows what his strengths are, um, you know, where his potential number is going to be. The other thing too, Chris, is that eventually we're going to get another infusion of national TV money, mm. right? Like, so by like 2023, 24 in that area, Ooh, so the cap like, could spike. this cap is going to go up again. So we're in this flat period, right? So we went from, we're at 109 this year, we're going to go up to probably 112 next year. A little bit of an increase might take a little bit of, you know, we got to get this revenue back to, to normalize. Eventually in year two of that Robert Williams extension or year three, like paying him $17 million a year hmm, might be kind of like a team friendly contract mm -hmm. now because the cap's going to go up here. So I think that's all a lot that, um, that Mike Zarin and, and Brad are going to have to, take into into consideration here because as i said like the one thing you do want to be concerned with him outplaying his contract in his fourth year and then all of a sudden you know maybe he's signing a three-year offer sheet with a player option in year three you know or something mm -hmm. you know something to that magnitude where you could have had him on a four-year guaranteed you know no options type deal but now you're you know it's the, it's the gordon situation and um you know, when Gordon was in Utah yeah. and it's different, you know, because Gordon was a max player on his, that, that was his, you know, his, his second contract, you know, like Utah was hesitant on the years. He went out and gets this offer sheet from Charlotte. And then all of a sudden Gordon Hayward's out in free agency in like three years later here. So a lot of different variables that you have to kind of consider short-term, long-term uh, here. If he, Hey, if he's part of your future and you think his upside is high, you don't need to go out and pay him you know, 24, $25 million, but there's gotta be some type of, of compromise there. I th and I think I, that's why I, why I am not bullish and especially not during the age era that they would do a rookie extension. I feel pretty comfortable that they might get this one done. Cause I think Rob needs a little bit of security based on his, his, his injury history. Uh, the Celtics know a lot more about than us about the medicals and exactly how those look, but if they're, you know, feeling pretty good that that hip isn't like they, uh, degenerative thing or something that could linger into the future. Maybe they're a little bit more willing to splurge. And I think you bring up a fascinating point with the cap. You know, don't we do this every time where we say, oh my God, Marcus Smart, 448. Like that is crazy money. And then we get in here near three and we're like, oh my God, he has this great trade asset now. So maybe sometimes you do just have to roll the dice. All right. I want to finish up with a, a few other things before I get you out of here. Just take me back. Danny Ainge's tenure. I know it's kind of like intertwined yeah. with you and I'm bringing up some personal sure. stuff here, but- wow. But how, how should we reflect back? Because I think there is a, you know, with everything we do, there's a little bit of a recency bias. We say, ah, you know, ever since Kyrie, it's been a, been, yeah. a, been a little bit of a slippery slope. But, you know, in totality, what Ainge was able to do, like, how will you remember his tenure? Well, we're in a, such a day and age. It's like, what have you done for me lately? Yeah. Right. Like, we just remember as far as, you know, like what the last two or three years. Right. So you're thinking like, 
you know, Gordon leaving, Al, Kyrie, you know, guys who you, you left and you didn't recoup any type of, you know, you know, value for. I, what I think of Danny Ainge's tenure is um, a, a guy who, a, a good person who took over a team that was sputtering, mm-hmm. right? Um, those post teams, the team that, and when I was in New, New Jersey that we beat in the two years in the playoffs, conference finals, uh, uh, Eastern Conference semis, I think, or maybe mm-hmm. even first semi- semis, um, and transitioned in, into a championship team in keeping Paul, KG, Ray Allen, bringing in veterans to surround them, um, having faith in Doc, um, patience level, and then realizing that we've hit a dead end. Mm-hmm. That is hard. That is the hardest thing to do is retool a roster. Not like bottom out, like, you know, just, you know, selling off everything. And I know, you know, the, the KG Paul trade to, to Brooklyn and everything, you took it, you, you did take a step back that year, 13, 14, right? But to transition and make that trade, and put them, hey, they're in a better position now than they were in 2013 pre-Brooklyn yeah. trade. Oh, 100%. Right? It's funny. There was an article written yesterday about um, – uh, someone wrote an article about the Harden trade, and they said, yeah, you know, the trade they, – the pick they sent to um, Houston is going to be some sixth grader out there, right, like in 2027. And, you know, when we made the trade with – with Boston, like, did we think it was going to be Jalen Brown, and Jason Tatum? Like, God, no, I would have been <laughs> fired on the spot, not three years later. So I think what it showed was that he hired the right person in Brad Stevens to, to lead a retooling slash development of the roster. Um, the, hey, you pick Jalen Brown at number three, right? Um, you make the boss, you make the trade with Philly, right? Mm-hmm moving out of one to move back in the draft and get Tatum. Um, You've been able to, you added Kyrie, you added, you know, you added all these guys and you still have a playoff worthy roster. Has their championship window closed? I don't know. Like who knows? I mean, we, we, if we're comparing it to Brooklyn, it's unfair to where the Nets roster is right now. I mean, look at Milwaukee's facing right now. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're facing a, a juggernaut here. So all in all, the, the, the Danny Angel uh, turn here should be seen as positive. I mean, it really should be um, based on they are in good position still to either tweak this roster. You've got two players, two top 25 players in, in Brown and Tatum. That is hard to do. And those players were, uh, you know, identified in the draft. Uh, I think it's funny. I think from 2013 to pretty much the Kyrie trade, Danny Ainge and Mike Zarin might've been on the heater of all GM heaters. Like I go back and I look at those moves and there are very few missteps. Like they, they acquired Austin rivers at one point, but it was during the turnover phase. So they just got rid of him for practically nothing. Like, could you maximize that asset a little bit more? We're nitpicking. And then Kyrie things went a little sideways, but that was still the right move for that group as hard as it was personally. And that's why, you know, part of when we're talking about Brad Stevens, like he was so devastated having to move Isaiah Thomas. 
Well, those are the sort of moves he's going to decide to make now. And I think that, you know, kind of brings it full circle when I think about the challenges ahead for him. But like, yeah, I think uh, Danny Ainge did some remarkable things during that. I was going back and like trying to pick my, my favorite under the radar because everyone go, defaults to that Nets trade or yeah. KG. But like they traded for Rondo yeah. in, two, in that 2006 draft and made the trade to get rid of LaFrance and set up the, the whole Theo Ratliff and had the money then or the match to go make that trade with Minnesota. Like he, there were so many little under the radar things. I don't know if it, I, 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 I've, I've always wanted to ask you about this one. When Mike Zarin comes to you and says, like, we want to do the the Paul Pierce, what essentially was the Paul Pierce trade exception. Like, did you know what they were doing? Did you know they were sort of lining it up to like there's a whole Keith Bogans thing to get like a, a couple more assets out of that? Well, I mean, that was just a matter of trying to get the money right. to line up um, because there was so much money going out with um, with Paul and Kevin, Jason Terry um, coming back. And you just basically like run out of like tradable contracts, right? Like. You just, it just, it's just the reality of it. It's like, and I, I had dealt with a situation like that in, um, in New Jersey when we made the key, um, the Jason trade, Jason Kidd mm-hmm. trade to um, Dallas in 2007, where um, the Mavericks used Keith Van Horn. Um, Keith Van Horn right. had not been on the roster, I think for like <laughs> two years and we needed the money to work and Keith Van Horn was used in a sign in trade. I think we they paid, we paid him $3.5 million to make it work. And that's how the deal got done. So I already had some experience prior to, I think I heard you tell we, this story too. Didn't you have to like bring him in and just like let him work on an exercise bike or something? Yeah. To, I mean, and, and the rules actually changed. The rules right. eventually changed because now you can only use a player in a sign in trade. If you, if you just finished on your roster, like, if you have the rights to a player or their, um, you know, their bird rights and he went to Europe for two years, right. He comes back, you can't use him in right. a sign and trade. So, yeah, I mean, when we made the trade, uh, you know, and it's funny, like we had to convince David Falk to like, for him to do this deal, like for Keith to do this deal. It's like, it's really good. You know, he's going to get $4 million just to come and do nothing. And um, the league was very skeptical and they actually sent someone over to like, make sure he was actually in the building <laughs> And he was on the treadmill, you know, Amazing. and then the other, the other two weeks he was sitting in the, in the media room, reading the book. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that was the tenure there, but yeah, so there's experience already. And um, I, I always, whenever I see Keith Bogans, he always gives me a big hug, <laughs> you know, it made him a lot of money. I was going to say, like, he, I, I never got why he was so mad. I know it went sour in Boston. He wanted to play and all that, but man. Well, even, himself- hum, even Chris um, Humphrey, yes. um, you know, like we did those deals basically, um, you know, there were those one year, $14 million deals or two years, 20, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, just as, you know, we, we kind of, before there was the JJ Reddick one year, 20 million, you know, it was kind of that, all right, let's do a balloon payment overpay. But if it's almost like our own big trade exception, mm-hmm. right? Like if we can use, um, we can use down the road. And um, but yeah, with Keith, it was basically like we we don't have any more money. What is the be- next best resource? And it was it was the the um, you know that use him in a, in that trade. Yeah, it's funny. So I was because I was going back over like try, again trying to find my favorite moves. I I almost forgot. I used to have a tree of what like all the assets became and what, what went where, but I forgot that, you know, the way the Celtics ended up structuring the trade, they generated the trade exception for, for Pierce. Uh, and they used that to go get Tyler Zeller yeah. and Marcus Thornton. A when year later. LeBron, yeah. When LeBron was going yeah, to we Cleveland. Were part of that deal too. Right. Right. And, 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 and you get to the point like where like you, when you know LeBron, like he's going, right. He's going yeah. back to Cleveland. All right. Let's figure out 
how do we get some like so we wind up getting Jarrett Jack and Sergey Karasev from the Cavs because they needed to clear out move but like if the guy's coming home like you're gonna mm-hmm. like they'll figure out a way they'll just go to the next team right like to to move money and stuff and you know Jarrett was um you know he had value for mm-hmm. us for those for those couple of years and it's in the same with uh you know with Boston as far as um you know with that with that trade for uh with Zeller yeah, and it ended up becoming Isaiah Thomas, which yeah. sort of snowballed. And so, like, you know, it's, it's always, always a part four to trades, right? It's, it, it never ends when, you know, a one for one, something, either that second round pick you acquired or that, you know, give a good you know, quick example. Like Brooklyn made a trade with um, Toronto to take back Demar Carroll's money um, a couple of years ago because that was dead weight. And in that trade, they wound up getting a future pick second round pick which was eventually used to send to detroit in the bruce brown trade so there's always like part yep. two three and maybe four to to these deals well it's it's fascinating uh and i will say the the, the thing that's the only thing that sticks in the craw of the danny Ainge era is that despite all those right moves the brooklyn nets are going to win a title this year and Celtics <laughs> fans have not mentally braced themselves quite for that yet yeah. you know but that's it's, just hey hey when I always say, if you, you when you, you hit the lottery ticket, the lottery ticket is there's only like two of those out there when you can get two franchise level players with cap space and then be able to still have the assets to go out and get a third guy like that. That is the rare, the rare way to build a team. Um, it's the 1% way to, to, to do it. And um, they were able to, I mean, just look at the, the challenge in Los Angeles with the Lakers, you know, you've mm-hmm. got two guys and now you're, you know, one of those guys go down. There's not another, you know, Harden goes down. You still got KD and Kyrie, like, you know, like, and you still got your, your role players there. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, you know, not every, not every team can do it that way. Yeah. And when the Celtics had someone go down, it was Shemi Ojale and Tremont Waters. So uh, some work for Brad Stevens to do. Last thing, I actually meant to ask you this earlier and I want to get this in before the end. Uh, when, the, when you're doing a coaching search, when you're doing anything, when you have two guys like Jason and Jalen, yeah. how much involvement does a front office give them? Do you let them inside the room? Do you let, do you just kind of bounce thing off of them? Like how important is that when you have young stars that, you know, sort of, dictate where and how this thing will be built out they have to be part of the process are they in the room interviewing no but i think it's important for brad to lean on both players especially if you consider them part of your future and your core guys similar to what uh, what portland's doing with damian lillard mm-hmm. um you know damian's a little bit of a different situation just because you know there's hey like we can't lose damian damian, damian lillard has to be part of the search because yeah. if he's not he's going to be asking for a trade probably so I think in this day and age, player empowerment when it comes to coaching search um, should be the focus here. And you, you run the list of names by them, um, you get their input, and then you kind of go out and, and make, a, you know, make a decision um, on that. The one thing you don't want to do is hire a guy where Jason Tatum said, you know what? Like I, I, I was on a, you know, during and won the game, like this guy called me a boop, you know, something, right. Like, and, right, right. I'd say, yeah, but he's, I heard he's a really good coach, you know, like <laughs> that's the one thing you, you don't want to do. And you don't want to, I mentioned before, you don't want to run, put yourself in a situation where Indiana is in right now, where you thought you got the best X's and O's guy. But at the end of the day, that person wasn't able to communicate 
with your locker room and build a uh, build a relationship. So important to get both guys uh, involved in the process. Well, Bobby Marks, it's been a while since we've done a podcast together. I joked when you when you first jumped on uh, back in another lifetime. ESPN was kind enough to let us have a little bit of a floor, and I used it to champion spirit airlines and uh <laughs> probably made my own bed there but uh i don't know why they didn't ask me to, to keep hosting that 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 weekly pod but um I, your insight is is incredibly valuable and uh i don't know i might I, I hope i don't have to bug you again along the way here but i might have to just to uh do with this with the celtics craziness you got my pleasure being on with you chris all right good stuff there from bobby marks again the man has lived this life he knows what it's like to make those tough decisions the challenges that are ahead for Brad Stevens, but you heard us talk about it. Danny Ainge kind of being looking back on what Danny did during his tenure. And everyone always tends to point to those big moves, the Garnett deal from Minnesota trading Garnett and Pierce to Brooklyn for that bevy of picks that has left the Celtics win the position they are in now. But I, 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 for last week's Forsberg four on Celtics post up every Thursday night on NBC sports, Boston, I went and tried to find the four under the radar moves. So I told you one of them there with Bobby, essentially the picks that became Isaiah Thomas has sort of spearheaded this new movement of being in title contention or in the mix once Isaiah went to another level. But here's four more, or, or I should say three more, that I really like that I think Danny Ainge should get credit for even beyond the big moves. We're going to leave you this week with that segment from Post Up. While you're watching it, go like, subscribe, check us out on YouTube. We'll see you next time on the Celtics Talk Podcast. Let's get into Forsberg's Four, where we get into the most interesting stats and storylines of the week. And it's all Danny Ainge today. Uh, what do you have for us, Chris? Yeah, so I, I wanted to go back. Like, Danny Ainge is here 18 years. I think he made 66 trades, drafted a whole bunch of players. What were his best moves? Now, it'd be easy if we sat here and said, oh, yeah, getting KG, the Brooklyn trade that got all those picks and delivered Jalen and Jason. But no, I want to dig a little deeper. How what were the moves that kind of flew under the radar? So my first one is the 2006 draft. So the Celtics in 2006-07 were nothing to write home about, and it was a miserable year. But Danny really started to lay the foundation for the 2008 title that year. He used the number seven pick in that draft and to get off Rafe LaFren's uh, contract. Not only that, he brought back Theo Ratliff, which ended up being a big piece in the KG deal later the next year. And the other thing was that night they drafted Rajon Rondo and Leon Poe making trades to get both of those at the time. Didn't know what to expect from either of those players, but they were key parts of that 2008 title. So uh, uh, as much as we focus on what happened in 2007 draft night, 2006 laid the foundation. Yeah. Some sneaky good moves that paid off in the long run. Uh, what other under the radar moves did Danny Age make that is going to make this list today? All right, everybody knows that 2015 acquiring Isaiah Thomas was a huge move that really set the team up to go get free agents like uh, Al Horford and Gordon Hayward and pitch to Kevin Durant. But the year before that, Danny snuck in. The Cavaliers were trying to get LeBron back to Cleveland, needed to shed some some salary cap space. So he swooped in with another bold move, which was getting a trade exception when they moved Paul Pierce to the Nets. And they used that to take back Tyler Zeller, Marcus Thornton, and a first-round pick. Thornton in that first round pick about eight months later would go to Phoenix to bring in Isaiah Thomas. And again, that jump started this rebuild. Like it was already going in the right direction, but once they get Isaiah, it was clear they went to another level and it really laid the foundation for bringing in again, Horford, Hayward, all these guys that sort of put them onto a title contender path. So 
you can't just look at the move itself. It's always the move before the move. Yeah, just laying the foundation. What do you have next for us? All right, so I know I said I wasn't going to include Jalen and Jason, but that would be disrespectful because Danny Ainge, for all his reputation as as trader Danny, we always kind of focus on the trades that he makes or, well, in some cases, didn't make. But one of the nights that he didn't make a trade that was really important was 2016. I mean, I can't explain to you what it was like around here because, again, they were on the cusp of being something, and they go into that draft, and everyone was like, oh, they either got to trade it for a veteran like Jimmy Butler or Paul George, or they got to go get Chris Dunn. And Danny was like, nope, I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to pick the, pick the guy that I think has the best upside. And he took Jalen Brown at number three. People at the Garden booed. Poor Wick Grosbeck had to go out there to try to talk to the crowd. And they were booing because Jalen Brown was, to them, a disappointing pick. Well, five years later, I wonder how fans feel about that because Jalen is clearly a piece of this core, elevated to all-star level. The trajectory of this team would be decidedly different if Danny and his crew didn't trust their gut and land Jalen Brown. Yeah, I feel like those same fans that probably booed that night are also cheering on Jalen Brown this past season. Oh, last but not least, though, what do you have for us? Uh, well, we just got to bring it full circle. What was Dan maybe Danny's best move here? He only had to pick two coaches his entire time he was here. Doc Rivers back in 2004, I believe it was, and then in 2013 landing Brad Stevens. What's funny to remember, I was going back, I was like, because as we start to figure out who's going to be the Celtics' next coach, I said, who were the names that were bubbling up before they surprised us with Brad? Listen to these. Brett Brown, Vinny Del Negro, Scott Skiles. Like, the, the, there was a whole bunch of, like, either retreads or guys that, that, that were still below the surface. And Danny went out and found this college coach that probably not a lot of us thought would even leave Butler or could be a success at the NBA level. And not only did he pick the next coach at that point, but evidently he picked the next president of basketball operations as well. So uh, we'll see if that, that, that pick can continue to deliver as we move into the future. Yeah, it kind of goes back to that trend of laying the foundation. Let's take a closer look at Brad Stevens, though. Time now for Bringing the Heat, brought to you by Eastern Propane and Oil. There in your neighborhood. With Wednesday's shakeup came the end of the Brad Stevens coaching era. With the Celtics, here's a look at how Stevens fared on the sideline. The Celtics only missed the playoffs once in his tenure and made it to the conference finals three times. Chris, in terms of candidates for a head coaching position that's now open here in Boston, we've heard several names like Chauncey Billups, Jason Kidd, Lloyd Pierce. Also, Carol Lawson has come up here at NBC Sports Boston with, uh, with Scal. What are you expecting or who are you expecting to lead here as a candidate? So I am sort of expecting the unexpected. I think Brad has this huge Rolodex of names that he can dive into. And while a lot of those people that you mentioned, I think will be right there in the mix. I wonder if there's someone we're just not thinking about a very Brad Stevens like hire someone that either Brad has come across or feels like would be just the perfect person to motivate Jalen and Jason and build this core again. Brad has this weird experience, right, where he's been in it, and he knows better than anyone who can push this team to the next level. So can now he's just going to go find that person and make sure that they can direct it and, and, and get Jalen and Jason to maximize their talent. But I do love, I kind of like the idea of either a former player, you know, whether that's Sam Cassell or Chauncey Billups. Kara obviously has the respect of this locker room from her time here. Uh, there's a lot of intriguing choices, but I do think, again, the Celtics have always been innovators. They've always been able to think outside the box. I bet they find a way to surprise us with which with, with direction they go to replace Brad Stevens.